0: That's defeating at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2024. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here is grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
1: Gentlemen, here we are at our Q&A session, and I'm going to provide the Q's, and Dr. MacArthur will provide the A's. That much I have figured out. Uh, The last two years... Let's start there. The last two years have been uh, a colossal shift for so many. And I wonder if you've seen anything like this before. You've been at this church 53 years. Is this truly unprecedented or is it the same thing you've been dealing with for decades?
2: (laughs) No, it is um, truly unprecedented. <clears throat> and I would, I would even say this, it's probably been the most energizing, most thrilling, most uh, sanctified fun I've had in half a century. <laughs> <laughs> so I've loved every, every minute of it, every day of it, yeah. every week of it. The adventure, the sense of expectation when people came to church and wanted me to help them sort out the world that was changing under their feet. Yeah. And being able to give biblical answers and being able to be open and to love people through this thing and take away the fear by just having them show up and they see me and I'm not wearing a mask and the elders aren't wearing a mask and nobody's wearing masks and nobody's keeping distance and we're hugging each other and everybody's healthy and happy and the health department prints that there's no outbreak of COVID at Grace Church and this is right in the middle of the beginning of the thing and. Um, they're fining me every week, uh, a health fine, and then there's also a fine for uh, contempt of court, right. and that is a jail sentence for each one and a fine for each one, and that they rang that up for over a year every week. And uh, they're coming after us, but they can't do anything to stop us meeting. Uh, the judge who took our case twelve times um, this judge, this gentleman who's a judge, is married to a man, so he's really not, you know, like a fan of our view of right. things. But he keeps stopping the county and the state every time because he says you can't litigate the the issues in this case until you get past the First Amendment issue, and you haven't done that, so they could never litigate it. Finally, we said. We want to get this over with, so we want to depose the health of health officials in LA. We want the top health officials. We're going to call them in for a legal deposition. Twenty four hours later, they gave us everything we wanted. They couldn't afford the truth to be known. And in a legal deposition, that would have that would have the jig would have been up. Right. And, and so by that n-
1: time, things in our city are still completely chaotic if you're from one of the free parts of the world you may not understand this but i mean it, it was we were locked down forever out here and i mean we could get to santa monica in 15 minutes uh during the height of this thing cuz everybody was in their house mm-hmm. and except on sundays here after a brief closure when we were trying to assess you know what is this thing mm-hmm. um And whatever it was, whether it was the bubonic plague or or still whatever it was, uh, you know, we knew we had to have church. And when I think about you during those days, the MacArthur Shrug was a feature as you just kind of went, hey, they could put me in jail. I remember seeing you say that a number of times, you know, you were ready. You were invigorated by this. this. This gave you energy. I mean, you're MacArthur, you're a fighter. And... And I wonder, when you think about the last two years and how God prepared you for this time, in fact, I remember you saying, one of the reasons God kept me alive this long is for this battle. And I think that that's right. What did God do to prepare you for it?
2: So I'm trying to prolong this battle so I can stay around right, for a
1: right. that's, Look, we're glad that Vody didn't die. We really don't want you to die.
2: Um everything about it was energizing because people were terrified they were fearful and this place became a haven. <clears throat> I remember the when people started coming back to church on their own. I just said if you want to come come. We didn't make an official announcement. People would say to me, "Can we come to church cuz first few I guess a couple of months we preached in an empty auditorium." And, come if you want to come. So they started coming and coming and coming and there was so much joy and so much exuberance and such a sense of freedom. And I remember the Sunday when we said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna throw it open for everybody, and invite children back." And we put balloons all over the campus, gave every every kid a huge lollipop, and we had a thousand elementary kids show up that Sunday. They hadn't seen they hadn't seen other kids, they hadn't been to school. It was euphoric, and and then it just took off from there. And of course. We saw people coming from everywhere, from churches all over the place, and uh, you know typically here people come to Grace Church because somebody leads them to Christ, somebody in the church leads them to Christ, or they come from another church like this, so they, they 're sort of in our theological world. but we started getting people from all kinds of places who i mean we started interviewing people who came to the prayer room or came to join the church and they They were from very alien church environments, and we were trying to reprocess how we're handling these people because we couldn't we we had no expectations of what they might know that's compatible with us so it was an incredible way for the Lord to sift people out of bad and weak churches and it's it's been it's just an astonishing thing, and the giving and the volunteering uh you know, there's a waiting list for volunteers for this week's conference. Mm-hmm. The, these people—they—they they love this church, and they—they they show it in their giving. I mean, there's—it's just staggering how they give and uh, how they support everything. So, I—I I, I think as the as the ground underneath everybody was shifting and nobody knew what the future was they knew what this was yeah, that's right and they found their stability their anchor the truth was here and we tried our best to navigate everything in a biblical way and give them biblical wisdom to deal with what was going on and we showed them we showed them we had zero fear
1: right zero fear and that was your first sermon even when things were shut down was a sermon against anxiety Mm -hmm. because you knew that's where people's hearts would go and and you didn't want them to be afraid of whatever was coming
2: well the worst that could happen is you're going to go to heaven right not a bad deal
1: right (laughs) so mac how did god build you for this is it because of the convictions that you held about the centrality of the church? Are you just wired this way? When, when you think about how God prepared you for this, are you able to assess that? Are you able to think about how He made you for such a time as this?
2: You know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know that I can even answer that. I remember playing golf with... Uh, Steve Jones one time, <clears throat> he was a PGA champ, and um, he hit a certain kind of shot, and I said, how did you do that, Steve? Incredible, incredible, around a bunch of eucalyptus trees, bent the ball like 250 yards down over another tree, dropped it on the green six feet from the pin in the, in the in a tournament. I said, how would you do that? he said, I oh. don't you know. So, the answer to your question is, I have no idea how, how I got here, but I, you know, I, I don't want to be angry, I don't want to be cantankerous, I don't want to be uh, uh, pushy or forceful, but I've seen a lifetime of divine providence. Mm. You can't convince me at my age that God is not in control of everything. Amen. And so I, I just said, we're going to be faithful, and we're going to be the church, and we're going to be who we need to be, and I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And, you know, I, I, you know, maybe there's something in my, in my past. I remember when I was playing football in college that I, I liked to win, but it dawned on me shortly into my career that uh, I couldn't control an outcome. All I could control was an effort. And sometimes my effort was hindered by people on the other team, and sometimes it was hindered by the people on my team. Mm-hmm. But whether it was the people on my team or the people on the other team, I couldn't control an outcome, but I could control the effort. And so I've tried to live my life in the sense that all I can do is give the Lord the best that I have and leave the end result to Him. So I'm not trying to fix anything, I'm not trying to fight anything, I'm trying to be faithful. and. Uh, I live, I live in the middle of providence to such a degree that I wake up every morning and I cannot wait to get my eyes open to see the providence of God unfold again in another day. Yeah. Um, my whole life is just this incredible—I'm not the reason for Grace Church. I'm not the reason for any of this. It's what God does in His own power, in His own time, in His own place bringing things together and people together that no one could ever orchestrate. And that, that's been the story of my whole life. So every day in this COVID thing has been an incredible adventure. I never worried about the trial. I never worried about the contempt of court. I, because I knew God had a plan, and all He asked out of me was my faithfulness. And when it comes to issues, you know, whether you know it's whatever issues are going on, we talked about some of them on... Uh, in the first session. All I can do is be faithful to the truth and proclaim the truth boldly, courageously, because as soon as I stop doing that, I've taken myself out of the flow of the providence of God. And faithfulness is what keeps me right where I need to be to be participating in what God is doing, and that's where I want to live my life.
1: And it's that increased awareness of providence as mm-hmm. you look back over God's faithfulness in your life combined with the profound sense of responsibility that you have to work hard to be faithful to to act on what you believe and then I think it's those deep convictions that have been mm-hmm. formed in you even from a young age uh, we had a conversation recently about your dad yeah and he was a man of integrity and conviction and so I really do see all these things unfolding to, to make you built the way that you are.
2: Uh, well, truth matters to me more than anything else. Right. Everything, I, I wake up every day and, and I'm just, all I'm concerned about is to, to, to understand the truth, proclaim the truth, live the truth. The truth is everything to me. Nothing else matters to me. The circumstances, the fluctuations, what's coming at me, what's being thrown at me, I just want to be faithful to the truth and so at the foundation of that is my theology, right. the theology tested over half a century from passage to passage to passage to passage to passage to passage, and it stood the test of half a century of intense expositional effort. And so I'm at a point now where my theology so anchors my soul that there's a kind of stability that I—I I, I, I mean, I tended to be a stable person as a young man, but it's nothing like now. There's a stability that history, the history of God's providence, has has laid down in my heart that um, just makes every day, no matter what the challenges are, a joyful opportunity to see God unfold His purpose. Not always in large ways; sometimes in very small things that you could never orchestrate. And uh, this is some I, I said in a in an interview the other day that. Uh, my favorite place to be is in a situation that has challenges, and I don't know the way out, mm. because then I can just be faithful and not try to orchestrate things. Yeah, and let God do what He will do.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the example that that we got to see is faith in unfolding providence, faith in that the courage to face whatever it is, knowing that the Lord is in charge that we're gonna do everything we can. And it wasn't that everything was crystal clear initially. It took time. We, we, we had elder meetings like all you men had where we wrestled with these things and, and had to work through them, pray through them, and ask the Lord for, for wisdom. Uh, and they had the same questions that that your churches had. Things like, wait a minute, I thought we're supposed to obey the government. And I think one of the things that came from, from out of this is the opportunity to clarify what that obedience entails. So uh, I brought up a little copy of of this of this fine little book about mm-hmm. uh, our friend James. You can hold it and yeah. kind of tell the guys about it. But it, it's that argument that you were making early on in this in this time about the spheres of authority, about you know where the limits of of Caesar's realm are. And our, our brother James Coates, who can't be with us because his borders are, are locked down. We would no, have him no he week. can't
2: be with us because Joe Biden's rules won't let him come in because right. he's not vaccinated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know what you meant by that clap.
2: No, so, look, look it's, it's, not, it's not confusing to me. Right. Uh, this is the best thing that's ever been written, I think terse and to the point on God and government by James Coates and Nathan Business yeah but but what you have to understand is it's simple it's really simple just take the Apostle Paul they right. told him not to preach so what did he do he preached yeah what did they do they threw him in jail end of yeah. story <laughs> how hard it is, is some, that and
1: sometimes the angel actually breaks you out of jail so and
2: or sometimes you don't go to jail or sometimes right. the jailer gets converted Right. Yeah. And when that's the angel just, breaks you, know, you not, out, you're not is,
1: supposed to stay inside.
2: This is not. This is not brain surgery. Right. You just do what you're commanded to do and be faithful. Um, when the government tells you to do something God has forbidden you to do, or tells you not to do something God has mandated you to do, that's not a hard decision. Yeah. Uh, I didn't understand why people were picking on us. Why you know the guy at Nine Marks wrote the. Kind of a diatribe against what we were doing, like we wanted to kill Grandma and all that. Um, I'm sure Grandma would have been fine if she was a believer. Take
1: it from Grandpa. Yeah,
2: <laughs> for sure. But it, it it never was that difficult to me. Every uh, you know, right. we we know that. The, the Scripture ordains categories of responsibility. I don't think a church, I don't think leadership in a church should tell a father and a mother what to do in raising their children. That's their sphere. And the government has nothing to say to the church of Jesus Christ. That is clearly proven throughout the entire New Testament. I mean, basically all the apostles died, virtually died or got exiled for violating the government. That's right. I mean, that's what they did. So that, that, that was never confusing to me.
1: Yeah, and that stance is a stance that you made clear. I mean, I, I, I was a great treasure when we found that recording of you in, I don't know, the late 70s, I think, yeah. saying if the government ever tries to come shut down Grace Church, we'll stand against them. Right. This is decades before yeah. any of this happened. So uh, you, you can catch that recording in the MacArthur Center podcast this season. So <laughs> it's a little, little commercial. <laughs> so something happened in those days. Uh, we're meeting in violation of all kinds of odd health codes, and the place is packed, packed with our church family, but packed with a lot of visitors that you alluded to. We had people with MAGA flags on the sidewalk. I mean, there was people that were more excited about our not following the, the laws of the Medes and the Persians than they were about the worship of Jesus Christ. They, we just had... We had Yahoo's coming in here, and yeah, it was, well, we it had, was wild we had, we had
2: hawkers selling stuff on the sidewalk like it was a fair.
1: Yeah, it, it was. I, one Sunday, I pulled in, and there was there was two ladies walking across the parking lot uh, in Moo Moo's and they were moving towards the building, and they yelled at a security guard. Uh, we saw your pastor on Fox News. We love conservative churches. You know they. they they were just excited to be here. They'd never been here before. We had a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah. And that was an opportunity for What did the moos
2: have to do with it? I just... I, was, I mean, I'm just saying.
1: I, I receive it. It's a concrete detail. It's in my mind. So, we had a lot of new people, MacArthur. I know. And... You decided you're going to go back to the book of ephesians, right. talk about that decision
2: well, because i i didn't know what these people knew, and it was becoming apparent to us that uh, first of all, we want to know they even knew what salvation was and right who christ was and um it just seemed to me that if we got into Ephesians, we started at the beginning we we started with uh, that in you know, incomparable first chapter. You know, blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly Christ Jesus. You just unfold all the way that one long sentence from verse three to fourteen, and you go through the glories of the gospel all the way down. There. You're touching every element of the gospel, every doctrine of the gospel, and you go down unfolding all that. And the next thing you know, you're in chapter two, and you're nailing the issue of, you know, being children of wrath and sin and but God who is rich in mercy for His great love with which He loved us. You know, then you're into the gospel of grace, saved by uh, grace through faith. And it just seemed like everything was there to start with God and then to talk about the gospel and then to, to talk about the church. And it was important because um, what Ephesians has to say about the church is built around the unity of the church. Um, it, it's, it's unity, 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 chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And I thought that was really, really important because the perspective that many people have of Christianity is its fractured, uh, sort of visible reputation. And so we've been been talking about the unity of the church for months and months now, and uh, there's still more wonderful things to come. You know, uh, we're getting into the issues of sanctification, walk in a worthy way, you know, consistent with your calling. Then we're, we're headed toward the armor of the believer. They're just, and then we're going to end up in prayer. And everything that seemed to me we would want to download into the minds of these new people could, could be accessed by the book of Ephesians. So that's why I chose it. And uh, it's been a slow go in, in, in some ways because we've, for some reason, we've had some interruptions along the way to try to navigate the issues that our people are facing, help them understand um, what's happening with the government and why we should expect it. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of wonderful things. Not too many weeks ago we had another uh, Law Enforcement Sunday um, when we wanted to honor the police, and uh, we've done that periodically. And we want to take the right side of God's ordained um, restraint in culture, and that's part of it. So. We've done some things in between, but I think, I think Ephesians is the best place where we could sort of launch to cover the range of, of the Christian, Christianity and the gospel and the Christian life.
1: Yeah, and it does seem to be one of the most insisted upon virtues in the entire New Testament, that desire for unity among God's people, especially in the local church. And a room like this is full of pastors who know just that, that the problems that come from disunity in their churches. I once heard you say that every problem in our church could be traced back to a failure to love. Talk about the, let's, let's meditate on, on unity a little bit more, uh, helping these brothers in the conflicts that they face in their churches pursue that kind of unity.
2: Well, what, what gets you to unity is love, what gets you to love is humility. Um, and that's why Paul says in chapter 4, you need to walk. Worthy of the calling to which you were called, in all humility. We camped a lot on that. You remember that message I did on Ephesians four one on sanctification? Yeah. We talked about what sanctification is, what it looks like, and uh, um, and humility, and then then gentleness, um, not not weakness, but but a kind of, but a meekness. So we talked about that. Th- those two. The messages we did on humility and meekness, I, I think, were very, very important because necessarily you must humble yourself to love another. I mean, you could go back to Philippians, and we, we 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 went to Philippians and we talked about let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Thought it not something to be grasped to hold on to what he had, uh, but it took him all the way down to the death, the death on the cross, and let this mind be in you which was in him. So I think. Preaching humility as the pathway to love and love the pathway to unity is, is what the New Testament does everywhere. So I, I think that, and of course it's boosted by Paul's language, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. And then he also has, before that, gotten into the thing that Jew and Gentile are one. There's no racial identities. There's no differences. Uh, and, and you know he's he's making the the case in chapter Two in chapter three in Chapter Four that the church needs to be united and th- this is um and this at this point this is the practical you know Jesus is praying for the spiritual unity in John seventeen, but this is the practical unity but but I think it doesn't happen because because you call for it, it happens because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to humble people, yeah. And then, I've said this, seems like often, answering question, what is, what is your objective in preaching? And it's simply this, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Um, so, if you're faithfully teaching the Word of God, the goal is not dogmatic people, like hard-hearted, theologically stiff people. The goal of our instruction is love. So the exposition of Scripture over a long period of time should produce love and a good conscience because you're walking in holiness and your conscience is not accusing you. And when you have a church where people love, where the instruction has produced love, and I think that this is what you experience when you come here and you interact with the people of Grace Church, half a century. Of teaching doctrine to people, hard preaching makes soft people, and uh, th- that is always the, the objective and the goal. And loving people can r- readily reflect the kind of humility that brings about unity. And so I, I can't, I can't remember the last time we had some kind of big. Um, erupting argument in our church over some issue, Um, something to be said for years and years and years of the work of the Word in a church, producing a a, a love that doesn't happen in a short time.
1: And what you've shown to us in sitting under the preaching of Ephesians as you travel through it another time is, is just how timely these truths about unity are in shaping the worldview of our people so that they can understand what's wrong with what the world is trying to sell them in the name of unity. And I think that one of the places where this has been uh, really demonstrated is is in the last years at at the university. Uh, That's a place where you're trying to instill a worldview in young people. and, And that's not the same worldview they're getting at the other schools. Talk about God's faithfulness. Uh, You've talked about it at the church. Talk about a little bit in your role as chancellor at the university and what's happening there.
2: Well, look, we we desperately have to capture this young generation. There's got to be a remnant coming out of this messed up generation of young people. They are so self-centered, so narcissistic so sexually overexposed, such perversion. we got to get serious about that. And you can't just throw them to the educational system, because a university may be the most dangerous place. I'd rather put my kid in San Quentin than in a university. I mean… I loved it. Uh, yeah.
1: There's been times I've wanted to put a kid in San Quentin before.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the metaphor is I'd rather lock him up there than expose him to the trash and sure. garbage that's going to corrupt his whole right. life. And right. so the Lord raised up the Message University to be different. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we're launching a, a new Thinking Biblically, right? And if, if, um, you can go to thinkingbiblically.com. Org, is that it? And uh, we're 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 launching that. We're going to try to reach beyond the university. The university is exploding right now. Uh, The Lord has been so kind to us. We have so many students trying to come there. We don't know what to do with them all. So we needed to house them. So the Lord has made it possible for us to buy how many houses, Abner? Ten houses in the last sixty days all surrounding the campus to house the students that are coming. And I think, that the, I think this is a new day. I think parents are now saying, look, we, we, we have a responsibility as parents. We can't just turn these kids over to anything.
1: And it's because the secular ideology is so obvious. It's so rampant and it's so anti-biblical.
2: Well, it's satanic. Yeah. It's just flatly satanic. And uh universities are dominated n- not by hard sciences but they 're dominated by soft s- sociology and This is what just shreds people's sense of convictions and uh, justifies any kind of I- immoral conduct so um, yeah so I, I think th- this is a time, as I said, the ground is moving, and there's a sifting going on even among churches and this is a time to get serious this is i mean we we even decided to a- some months ago, that we we, we couldn't expect our, all of our Christian families here to send their kids to the public schools. Public schools are dangerous. I mean, I mean, even in Florida, which is pretty good, there's a battle to keep teachers from teaching transgender stuff to kids in kindergarten. So we just decided we got we gotta start we got to start a we got to start a school program, a hybrid homeschool um, resident. Deal. And so we're, we're launching two new, two new elementary schools, one out in Santa Clarita, one here in, in the fall, because we've got to provide that, and the, the people are so on board, and we have such, such human resources here, and financial people have stepped up on everything, and we're, we're trying to make a difference as widely and broadly as we can, which is part of the Think Biblically approach. We want to help people think biblically. It's the, only, it's the only safety, it's the only hope.
1: Let's talk about the. we've got an update on the church, update on the university. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening at the seminary, and what you see is what's crucial right now in training pastors.
2: Well, it's, nothing has changed there in, in the sense that we have to preach. and you know, mean we have to preach. And you, you need to know how to preach, and that's what the master Seminary exists to do. Obviously, we'll, you know, we'll round that off with all kinds of other elements of ministry in terms of what the training involves, but we're, we're trying to train expositors who handle the Word of God accurately and don't need to be ashamed. Um, I, I think what has, what has changed is there's, there are less and less options you know like it's you could say a few years ago maybe eight or 10 years ago a student might apply here in three other places we don't see that now right the, the there's a there's a definitive definitiveness in the master seminary people know what we are they if they want that they know this is where you need to come there there's there's just a lot of loose ends in other seminaries a lot of shifting and moving and um if you're serious about the, the exposition of the Word of God in, in a framework of sound doctrine, and we're seeing the same thing with even donors who are saying, you know, we trust you. And, and part of that is half a century. So all these ministries are, are being strengthened, um, the increasing in enrollment and support, and we're, we're just very thankful.
1: What, what have you done or what has been done to ensure the fidelity of that school here in the 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 seminaries here on the campus of Grace Church. And when I was in seminary 15 years ago, uh, I had a lot of the same professors you had, you brought them in from, uh, and they were, they were getting older then. uh, And now most of them are, have graduated um, to heaven. So we've seen a generational shift, uh, you know, in the seminary founded in, in 86 and you know still bringing in students but the same priorities as when you when we began so what what are we doing to ensure that it doesn't experience what so many schools have experienced i mean once princeton was a conservative theological seminary so how do we guard against that kind of shift
2: first of all as the older faculty left we replaced them with our own guys that doesn't mean that every degree they had was here. Some, some that's the case. Some they went somewhere else and got a PhD. Um, you can you can take a look at the faculty listing and you can see the quality of the faculty. But look, I, I'm a low risk guy. <laughs> Even as a pastor, for 50 years we've developed our own leadership right out of this church. We just grew them here, and and uh, so there's a there's a cohesive. Um, fabric, uh, because we all come out of the same environment, doctrinally, theologically, ministry-wise. And uh, that's really important for the seminary. Uh, When when we wrote the book, Biblical Doctrine, the Big White Whale, they call it, the Big White Book on Biblical Doctrine, (laughs) Our whole faculty signed off on that. I don't know that you could get a seminary, to, to entire faculty, to sign off on one book on systematic theology. But that's the cohesiveness here. Um, and there's no virtue in having many views, because many views means more people are wrong. <laughs> so we'd really like to be right, and it's helpful if everybody thinks we are. So. Um, Uh, particularly the faculty who are the knowledgeable guys. So that's the starting point. And a very, very robust and detailed doctrinal statement that has to be signed by everybody every year. There's no tenure. And a board of directors who hold us to that. And a a connection to the the university and the seminary connected to Grace Church and its elders and leaders. Uh, That local church connection is very, very important to us. Good. And then um, I think alumni have very high expectations. It's kind of interesting. We were having a discussion last week. I was having it with uh, Dr. Chow. Um, th- w- there were some alumni who were concerned about an article in a, a journal, and, and the, there was nothing really to be concerned about, but they, they were thinking maybe there was an overemphasis in a certain thing. So this is very good. I mean, this is, this is really good when your alumni... When your alumni contact you and say, "Well, is this indicating a, a trend? Are we going this direction?" Or if you if you have a certain speaker at a at a doctor of ministries and you you face that, right. you got a guy who comes in and he's he's lecturing at that, and somebody says, "Well, you know, he doesn't believe this or that." And I think we've we've done this enough years now that we want to draw the very best from God's leaders and teachers, but. Um, there 's a, there's a path from which we don 't deviate
1: who we are is so clearly
2: defined
1: that moving from there is virtually impossible is how we 've set it up mm-hmm. and and I think that that 's a tribute to what you 've done in ensuring uh, the the place of truth where you started this conversation and the the pr- priority of, of right doctrine and and that 's I think something that um, Will, will mark the legacy of MacArthur is his determined confidence in the truth and dogged pursuit of the truth. And, and that's, I think, what, what we're seeing in our, our students that come to enroll in the seminary. They're guys who, uh, they don't have other options. They want to come here and learn to be expositors because that's what you modeled for us.
2: You know, I, I think I, I had a systematic theology when I came here, you know, my 20s. Uh, but it was taught to me, and that was okay. I mean, it was supported in the way a faculty would support a systematic theology. But but it got tested over half a century, because I had to—that theology had to hold up in every passage that I took. And, you know, the whole New Testament, preaching through that, and then going back and writing commentaries on the entire New Testament, running running Every single passage through that theology, <clears throat> um, I don't want to be hard nosed about the things I believe, but all I can say is they've stood the test of time, and they've stood that test for me and for others on our faculty, and um, that, that's the that's the best, because I uh, I I I don't want to assume that I I know everything because it's far from that, but. John said, I write unto you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. That's a pretty strong statement. And he said, you're strong because you know the truth, you know the Word. Um, That's that's really important. And so the more you know the Word, the stronger you become, and, and all your theology is always tested by that.
1: Our seminary has a thousand, over a thousand graduates that are now involved in pastoral ministry all over the world and global 88, 88 Christianity. Countries. What's that? Eighty-eight countries. Eighty-eight countries and and global Christianity is uh, obviously uh, reflected by these men's ministries and their work training pastors in other places through efforts like the Masters Academy International. Uh, j- even around campus today, as I walked around, some of the the meeting rooms are occupied by guys doing. Uh, Zoom calls to, to brothers in, in other places. and One of the, the emphases that, that we have here is, is certainly on global missions. It's a big part of our church, our seminary, and where we send our people to. And you've seen the fruit of that over the years. Talk a little bit about global missions and, and how that has developed into what it is today.
2: Well, it really started, <clears throat> you know, in earnest in the early 90s, maybe 91, when um, I went to Russia, went to the Soviet Union. It was just breaking up. In fact, I was in Kyiv in the Ukraine when Perestroika and Glasnost hit. This this was the liberation, and I happened to be there when they were building scaffolds in the city square in Kyiv, and they were climbing up the scaffolds with sledgehammers and smashing all the Stalin statues. I watched them hit those those iron statues until they fell down, and um, so th- I mean that was kind of the start of what we were doing. Yesterday, I saw that Erpine was bombed for th- almost thirty years. You know, our missionaries taught at a seminary in Erpine; it's still standing. The bombs didn't take it out, but we trained two thousand. Ukrainian pastors there who are now leading the well n- now leading their congregations, our missionaries are bunkered under underground um, they, they, for thirty years they taught these these men they 're bunkered down with their church people and with some non believers uh, sleeping on mats to, because it 's safe and trying to find food to feed their own church and um it's interesting, I had a conversation with a, a gentleman from that part of the world this morning who didn't speak any English, but he said, I want to tell you some good news. There are more, more evangelical Christians in Ukraine than any country in Europe. Wow. And many of them are in the, uh, the diaspora. They're, they're, they're leaving. And the word has come back to some of these leaders that they feel the Lord is sending them out to take the gospel to Europe. Wow. That's a pretty wonderful perspective on being dispersed. So that's where it all started. I, I, I preached there, and what happened was when the Soviet Union broke up, there were some leaders who were afraid. They were afraid of what was going to come in because the church in the Soviet Union had been protected from error because religion was against the law. So you had a true church, but you didn't really have a false church other than the Orthodox Church. So when everything came up they opened, they knew there were going to be false teachers coming in, so some of the leaders, the top leaders of the Evangelical Baptist, Christian Baptist Union, contacted me would I come, because they had read some they actually read books I wrote that were translated into Russian with a pencil and a spiral notebook. Well. And they said, would you come and help us build a fence around the, the church to protect it from false doctrine?" So I went, I don't know, 10, 11 times. It's, they said, could you, could you send more guys? So we do seminars, and then eventually, could you come and help teach? And so we, we've had a seminary in Samara. Thousands of pastors have been through training there. Another, another one now in, in Kiev, Kiev. Um, and out of that, we started seeing them pop up all over the world and right now, we have eighteen of those training centers that are meeting in thirty five cities and there are fifty other locations in the world asking us to come and train pastors we We had a luncheon a couple of weeks ago, and the TMEI guys, Mark Tatlock, asked what students would be interested in global work going to maybe establish a training center somewhere in the world, and sixty guys came to the to the lunch. So it's a, it's a high priority for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and, um, and, and, and our objective is always the same. We don't go unless we've been invited by the national church, and we go to help them train pastors. An illustration of it that is just amazing to me is our missionaries went to Indonesia to start a a training center for pastors in Indonesia, and they weren't really sure, you know, I guess, what what it was all going to be like, but they weren't there very long, and they they met an association of evangelicals that have 12 seminaries. These are faithful guys, and they have 12 seminaries in Indonesia. And they said, would you take over the teaching of expository preaching in all 12 seminaries? Hmm. Well, that's just mind-boggling. I mean, you go to Indonesia, you're not sure what you're going to do, and the next thing you know you've got twelve seminaries and you have responsibility to train them to, to do exposition. So they wanted to have a Zoom call, and so I did a Zoom call from here with these twelve seminary presidents and their leadership telling them why expository preaching was important. This is our vision and our mission, because this is how you, you have the greatest impact – train the pastors, right? Train the pastors, and then the pastors train the people. You have strong pastors, you have strong churches, and you have national impact. So this is developing, and it's now developing. As I said, there are probably 50 places in the world that are saying, can you come and help us train our pastors?
1: And what we're seeing all over the world, I think, is something that's that began here with your effort to disciple and train men mm. in, in this church when there wasn't the the far-reaching, uh, you know, global connectivity that, that we see now. And I think that's something important that you can share with, with these brothers that uh, they, they may not have access to 12 seminaries, but they do have men that they're pouring into in their church. Mm. Connect Connect that work in the local church of training men, the priority of training men, Uh, Really, in the early days of your ministry, one of your earliest priorities.
2: Well, I mean, I just followed the model of Jesus, you know, who pulled some men in as close as He could and poured His life into them. I knew we needed to do that here. I mean, I was coming into sort of an Arminian, you know, church, Methodist roots, and there was a lot to, to accomplish, but I started a Saturday Bible study that went for probably eight years, I invited certain guys to come and threw it open to any men, and I just taught them theology Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, talked about ministry. And I was young, but I was learning with them. But, um, yeah, I I knew that I needed to get the men ahead of the congregation. I mean, you can't – if all you're doing is training your men at the same pace you're training your congregation, they're never ahead, so where do the elders come from? I mean, where are the people that are going to be your teachers and leaders unless you get them out front? So that investment was critical, and out of that came all kinds of first generation, that first generation of leaders who then reproduced themselves in the same fashion.
1: You're still pouring yourself into training guys uh, all these years in, and we're grateful for that. Uh, What keeps you going, MacArthur? How how do you have the energy to continue to invest Uh, so many guys would have uh, taken the opportunity to switch to writing books Mm. uh, or finding a place just to to rest. But you mm -hmm. are relentless and you keep showing up to work.
2: Well, being a greeter at Walmart has very little appeal to me.
1: (laughs) I would like everyone to just pause for a moment and picture the scene. little yellow tag with the blue stripe and just a hello my name is john
2: can i give you a cart
1: (laughs) Uh, i'm not saying you wouldn't be good at it but i'm i am saying that you provide for us this example of perseverance and
2: i don't know i just know i wake up every day of my life and i thank the lord that i can do what i do and Uh, You know, I'm glad I'm here, but even more, I'm glad I know I'm here.
1: (laughs) What about preaching? Talk about preaching. How do you still keep motivated to preach? What what stirs in your heart? I mean, you're going back through Ephesians again. You're still prepping for every Sunday.
2: I, How do you do it? I am never more happy and more content than when I'm in my little study mm-hmm. pouring over the Word of God and preparing to preach. I mean, That is my favorite place to be. Um, I just... Um, I don't know, that. I can't, I can't imagine not doing that, I can't imagine doing something else. And writing a book, I mean, I wouldn't even know how to write a book if you said, go sit in a room and write a book. I have to preach a book, Yeah. I have to preach it, and then the dynamics of preaching is where I think my brain works best, mm. and maybe the gift enhances that process a little bit so that what I get out of a sermon I can turn into a book. Yeah. But I can't. I remember I was at a conference back at Grace Seminary in Rinalda Lake with Swindoll years and years ago. And I banged on the door of his room in the Friendship Inn, some little motel there. I said, Chuck, let's go to get something to eat. He said, no, I can't, I'm writing a book. And I said, what do you mean you're writing a book? He's sitting at his desk writing a book. I can't, I can't. Write a I said, I couldn't write a book. Just sit down and write a book, a whole book. (laughs) Maybe I'll try it sometime, but uh, (laughs) by the time I stop preaching, I won't have the brain to.
1: (laughs) Uh, We don't want you to ever stop preaching, Mac. Uh, We want you to keep on preaching, and we're the beneficiaries of of your love for the Word of God, your love for the process of discovery, and ultimately your love for for Jesus and His people that motivates you to continue to serve. So we're grateful for your persevering example to all of us.
2: Yeah, and and I appreciate that. I I need to just make a footnote before you feel like you're signing me off here. (laughs) But, But... when I, when I made the comment, and I just want to clarify this, when I made the comment about what was going on in Ukraine was judgment, I wasn't making a comment that, that the nation of the Ukraine needed to be judged. Um, you know, this is reminiscent of, of Hosea, who says, you know, why are you doing this, Lord? And then particularly, why are you letting this destruction come... And why are you using the Chaldeans to do it? Because they're worse. All I'm saying is, historically speaking, we live human history watching two things happen, judgment and salvation. Yeah. And everything that isn't salvation ends up being judgment. People die and face the judge. Um, Look, is Ukraine a nation that needs to be judged more than Russia needs to be judged? You can make an argument that that's not true. Uh, Could you make an argument that that Ukraine should be judged, but not America? So I'm not saying that. I, I don't know the purposes of God, but I know we have to live as if judgment is coming. Right. And we have to proclaim the gospel. And that's all I was trying to say was we live constantly, real in the realization that judgment is looming, and 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 God is offering the grace of the gospel, and it's in that realization that we live out our life in ministry.
1: That's how I understood it. It's appointed for a man once to die, and then the judgment. And so your earlier comments in this Q and A about providence unfolding—that's that's simply what is happening any time a nation sure. moves, right? I mean, yeah, that's... and, and
2: I, I made the other side of the point. that, that Some of them are saying, okay, we're going to go evangelize Europe. Right. I mean, you don't know what all God is doing in the middle of all that. People are in the basement of some place with our missionaries perhaps coming to Christ because non-Christians are there because they live in the neighborhood and they need food, and, you know, God accomplishes His purpose through these things. Right. Yes, uh, yeah. Look, God doesn't withhold judgment because nations don't deserve it. That's right.
1: And our nation is a, a perfect example of, you know, a great need for the judgment of God. Yeah. But His patience is evident. He continues to pour out mercy.
2: Yeah, and, and the leadership in this country is just, is just inviting more judgment.
1: So just, it's, it's a perfect environment for the preaching of the gospel, right, isn't it? and
2: that's that's the other reason you don't shut the church down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Give the men a final. Am I allowed to wrap up now, or no? Yeah. Okay. We have. I really do think I did a good job on that Q&A. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you.
2: No, thank you. Thank I you. know, thank I know for exactly rescuing. what that
1: meant. I know you do too, John. No,
2: you just rescued me from my eternal reward. <laughs> By taking credit, you get yours. <laughs> uh,
1: Any way I can help, boss. Any way I can help. Uh, What I was going to say was give these guys a word of encouragement. They got one more day of the conference. They're headed back to uh, out of uh, pastoral Disneyland, which is the Shepherd's Conference. And all the. uh, No one at their church shines their shoes.
2: Except we, yeah. So give them that. No one at my church shines. Well, they shine them this week. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, guys, I just, you know, the message is really simple. You have a high calling. This is a privilege beyond all privileges. Don't diminish the privilege by having unrealistic expectations about the outcome. Yeah. Do you understand that? Yeah. You're wearing the uniform. We win. You're wearing the uniform of the Son of God. You're doing His work. He triumphs. We win. Just. Just do your ministry yeah. and be full of joy and gratitude and let God's providence unfold.
1: One of the ways they can connect, we're going to show a video in a, in a moment, but one of the ways they can connect to this fellowship is through a deal we have called the Master's Fellowship. Yeah. you want to talk about that for a moment well, then we'll play we the video? Well, we just decided
2: that, you know, it really came out of the Shepherd's Conference. There's so many guys... Are disappointed with their denomination or association, and they feel closer to us, and or maybe they don't even have a denomination. They want a fellowship. This I mean, is this, is fellowship a part of this deal this week? I mean, you guys feel the the support of the other guys, and I mean, it's amazing. It's ama- I was talking to a I was talking to a guy from Poland up there who said there are more pastors in this conference. Then there are people in the evangelical church in Poland. Wow. He said, this is unbelievable. Well, you got to remember that. You you know, don't be Elijah. I only I am left. I mean, we're all together. But but you're not going to be able to to appreciate that if you don't connect. So the Master's Fellowship is just a way that we can help you guys connect with each other. Yeah. Um, it's not a program. It's an opportunity. It's drawn. It's, it's making some connections for fellowship. Yeah. And I think you can go somewhere and sign up for it. Yeah. yeah there's sure. a,
1: There. You'll see the video in a second. There's a link and there's a booth outside for Master's Fellowship. Yeah. You can connect with those right. brothers and,
2: and it's free. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We we're not trying to get anything from you. We want to be a resource to you. And so, uh, Mac, will you pray for these brothers? and We'll play the video and then we'll be. Mm-hmm. We'll
2: be the Father, thank you so much for bringing these men together. We just feel such an abounding joy, such gratitude in the midst of the chaos in the world, and yet our hearts are broken over all these people who are so lost, so fearful, so lonely, so unfulfilled, so dissatisfied, so broken, so loveless, so pained. And, Lord, strengthen these men, strengthen their churches. May the gospel go forward in this country in ways we, we wouldn't even expect given the conditions, and, and be with those believers that are in Ukraine getting pummeled, use them to bring gospel to those terrified people, and be with those believers who are scattering over Europe, and may they take the mission that You've given them even in their dispersion as an opportunity and a calling from heaven, and may they use it for your glory. Use everything for your glory. We we weary, we're like the saints under the altar wondering how long, O Lord, how long before you receive the glory you're due. And we say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, amen. You've been listening to
0: John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to us website at gty.org. John MacArthur and grace 2 You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.